Hey, good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming. If you're new, welcome. Welcome to Northview and our church family here. And thanks for coming to honor the Lord Jesus this morning. Uh, it's really a, a special deal uh, to gather, and I appreciate it. So just so you know, I, I was up all night last night, all right? My poor wife is sick, and uh, she's got that sinus cough, lung fever thing going on. So we were reading Exodus last night at 3 in the morning, okay? Not because we were spiritual. We just had no idea what else to do. So uh, if I fall asleep in the middle of the sermon, somebody just jostle me, wake me back up, and we'll go right back at it, okay? But uh, we, if you're, you, it's a good morning to be here if you're new because we're starting in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, we had the pre- preview to it last week. We'll start this morning. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for the chance to walk through this Gospel. It's a great Gospel. It's often overlooked. It, it's, it's compact. It's immediate, it bursts with activity, uh, but it tells, it tells the great and true story in, in vivid color. And Lord, as we walk through it, I, we just open it up to you. We open it up to your, we always pray, Lord, for your manifest presence. And what we mean by that is you're free. Uh, it's a standing invitation for you to join us. It's a standing invitation for you to walk among us as a crowd and speak individually through your spirit to each person. And they, you might highlight one particular aspect of the message and that's all they hear because you're having a conversation and that is fantastic by me. Lord, we seek you for that. We seek for your life to jump out of this as we, we go through it together. Lord, we uh, can't create life, only you can create it. And so we ask for that life to be among us while we go through your word, and we give that to you with great hope. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, so one of the problems when you start with these things, two, two major problems. Number one is we know the end of the story, right? So that wrecks it. It's like the movie you've seen five times, right? And you know the end of the story. And yeah, you're still into it, but you're not as into it as the first time it caught you with the, the flip and <gasps> kind of thing. And second problem with it's hard to, to put ourselves back there, it's, it's hard to imagine what it would be like. Have you ever stopped and thought, what would it be like? Have you been reading the Word and then suddenly go, wait a minute, stop. What would it have been like to actually be there? I mean, there, like, you know, when it's happening, when, like right now. And so I have a little story for us this morning. It's a, it's a fictional story. But the idea behind the story is to help us um, feel like what it would have been like to be there when Jesus's ministry actually began. All right. So uh, what we want to do with this as we go through the Gospels, we don't just want it to be a head thing. Yeah, I know more theology. I know more verses. I know more right stuff. Da 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 da. That kind of thing. We don't want it to be that. We also don't want it to be a cultural thing. Yes, I've read some of the ancient manuscripts, and I know how they connect to the English literature of the you know. Okay, we don't we don't want to do that. What we want to do is have the sense of engaging with it in a living way. So let me read a story. Walk along with me in this story and see if you can find some identification points. It goes like this. Young Levi's father came into the room while it was still dark. Rustling the young boy's covers up, son, up. We have to go quickly. Levi stretched. There it was again, the pain. His almost constant companion since he had accidentally fallen off the roof helping his father last fall. Gingerly, he swung his good leg and then 
his bad leg after it. it. It was his hip, and it wasn't getting any better, at least as far as he could tell. Eyes half closed, he reached for his crutches, missing, then watched them fall and knock the water jug over. As the water spread across the floor, he muttered and hopped on one leg to retrieve the wayward crutches. They were a menace and a nuisance as far as he was concerned. The hurt in his hip almost went away from the hurt those crutches put on his armpits. But they had to get going and he knew it. Sucking in his breath, he steadied them and off he went. Levi was only 12 when the accident had happened and he would turn 13 in two months. Levi's father, Ezra, worried. How would they pull off his bar mitzvah? Even more worrisome is, how would his young son learn a trade and find a place in this world? There were few things more daunting than having a son who was a cripple. He had seen the beggars at the temple in Jerusalem, and the thought of his son having to resort to that after he was gone was terrifying. But all that would have to wait. Right now, they had to get to market, and they had to get there for the fish. Fishermen came down with carts from the Sea of Galilee, and they needed to beat the other market vendors. Bethany was a small, out-of-the-way village, but lately business had been booming. The town had never seen the like of it. Thousands were coming to this little remote dustbin, and although supplies were stretched to the breaking point, there was money to be made. And Ezra was determined not to let the opportunity pass. Although he was more than a little worried why it had come to pass. These things were tricky and one had to be careful. It was what was at the center of all this unusual activity that had Ezra worried. An Israelite in the flavor and style of the old prophets was baptizing people and calling for repentance. And people were coming from everywhere, even from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Nobody ever came from Jerusalem. Not to Bethany. And it wasn't just anybody's either. It was the priest and the rulers. And this is exactly what had Ezra worried. That could be really good or that could be really bad. And which one it was remained to be seen. The Romans did not put up with nonsense and talk of a Messiah was beginning to float through the crowds. As far as Ezra was concerned, the rulers and the Romans could stay in Jerusalem. They deserved each other. Bethany was a nondescript, backward hobble, and he would prefer it stay that way. But it didn't look like that was going to be the case. In the meantime, there were fish to sell. Ezra and Levi wove their way down to the market with the sun barely rising over the hills. Ezra bartered with the fishermen and then set up his booth in the market. And Laying out the fish, Levi was given his instructions. Smile, son, sell fish. Smile some more, sell more fish. Levi complied. Leaving his son, Ezra rushed off to take care of some more business, hoping it would be a good day. The sleepy little village began to awaken, with it throngs of people who had come from all directions. Tents could be seen in the surrounding hills, and voices began to ring out. Business was good. People far outnumbered the available supplies, and by noon, Levi was sold out. His father took the money and went away to home to hide it in a safe place till tomorrow when more fish could be bought. Done cleaning up the stand, Levi watched as the masses of people moved down towards the river. 
He had never seen so many people. He had heard the stories. Stories from the hill country about the strange circumstances of this man's birth. Some even said an angel had spoken. A Nazarite set apart for God. Levi could understand that. He, there had been many who had set themselves aside for a few weeks in a vow to Yahweh. But his father said that a man was known by the company he hung with, and the Essenes were more than a little different. Lots of rumors swirled about the strange stuff happening in the desert. But no one really knew for sure because they clung close to themselves and never really interacted with anybody. It wasn't the first time someone had claimed to form a true new spiritual community. Most never lasted. Cynicism was high and skeptical towards them. But now this man of the desert had come. And he hadn't stayed away. He walked right through town on his way to the river. An ascetic, they said. But way beyond that, a wild man. Levi chuckled. He even kind of looked like a wild animal with the way he dressed. Camel's hair, itchy, yuck. What Levi couldn't figure out was, what was all the commotion about? The man, it was said, spoke loudly and wildly of things. Things about God and people and sin. An ascetic so extreme that some said he was possessed by the devil. But a man possessed of evil spirits never talked this way. And speculation was rampant. Levi heard the talk in the marketplace, whispers, the Messiah. Didn't seem likely. It had been over 400 years since there had been a prophet in Israel. Careful Romans. They knew how that would go if their words were heard. Jerusalem might be far enough away from... uh, Jerusalem might be far enough away, but Caesarea Philippi was not. It was right on the Sea of Tiberias, Galilee, if you were an Israelite. A flat run of 20 miles that the Romans could cover in less than a day. Half a day if they were perturbed. Levi knew this was what his father Ezra was worried about. Didn't take much for things to get out of control. And this had the makings of trouble written all over it. Still, Levi was curious. He had heard the buzz when the crowds came back for the evening. The kingdom of God. Something pulled inside him when he heard those words. The thought of going down to the river on those crutches was agonizing and less than appealing. But it could be done. Many others, maybe others would help him, uh, help carry him back up the hill, making the whole process less torturous. Levi knew his father would be displeased with him. Son, do not get entangled in that mess. Nothing good will come from it. And the opposing thoughts wrestled inside him. Should he? Shouldn't he? In a moment, his mind was made up. He would go down to the river and he would hear this wild man and what he had to say about God. As he grabbed his crutches from behind the stand, he looked up and he saw another man coming his way right through the market. Strange. There was nothing extraordinary or or noticeable about him. And yet Levi couldn't take his eyes off of him. He was being followed by some other men, men actually not much older than Levi himself, but it was clear who was the leader. Levi stared. The man looked right at him. He imagined he almost saw a smile. Was his mind playing tricks? 
The man continued and walked right past his fish stand on the same path Levi was going to take down to the river. Levi didn't know what was happening, but he knew something was happening and he was going to be there to see it. Crutches and all, he had to follow that man who had just walked by him. And thus we come to the setting of the opening of Gospel of Mark this morning. And it begins this way. It reads, oops, there we go. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If you look at the word gospel there, that's prominent. Uh, it is a word that's actually coined from Old English, meaning Godspell. Some of you would remember that as a musical, right? And if you laugh, you just gave your age away. Okay? But uh, in the Greek, uh, in the, the Greek equivalent is evangelium or, or good news. And so some descriptions in Unger's Bible commentary. Bible Dictionary, which is a great book if you don't have it. In the early Greek, it used to mean a present given to one who brought good tidings or a sacrifice offered in thanksgiving for such good tidings to have come. That was it. Eventually, it just meant for the good tidings themselves. And therefore, the gospel, as we understand today, means the good news. And Mark opens the gospel with this, the idea of here is the good news. Here is the message of Jesus coming to us. And a couple of things that stand out in the first line of Mark's gospel. Many scholars point out to the similarity of Mark's use of the beginning with that found in the book of Genesis where it says, in the beginning, in both God is doing a new work. In Genesis, God is creating the world and the order of the world. In Mark, uh, Jesus' ministry is beginning. It's starting. It's a new work. The gospel of his son. Jesus Christ here in the passage is used as a title more than a formal name. We would tend to use it as a formal name, right? We would say Jesus Christ just like we'd say Steve Mitchells, which is my name, all right? Uh, It should be Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Savior, uh, which is technically what the word Messiah uh, means and that uh, Christ is the Greek form of Messiah, which is Hebrew. Uh, And so... Now, though, days, we, it's his name, right? Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ. We know him by that. The title Son of God is an important one when you look up there. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark uses this title in his gospel uh, nine different times. And so we'll have fun finding where that is and we'll point it out as we go along. But what the church understands from this in the title Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it means that uh, the church fully historically has understood that this is the divine claim of Jesus' godhood. Right? Two different parts. Jesus, his human nature. Jesus means God saves. It's his human nature. And Christ, his divine nature, the Messiah, the Son of God. Theologically, it's a big word. It's called hypostatic union. Right? That's kind of a cool word. It sounds like the transmission in a new pickup, right? Hypostatic, you know, this kind of, kind of thing. But it's called the hypostatic union. It's two natures brought together, indissolubly welded into one. They can't be separated out anymore. So Jesus is proclaimed as holy human, totally human, but also holy God. 
And those are brought together. And this is the story uh, as it's going to be played out. So the gospel, the good news, is the story of Jesus coming to earth. I call it Jesus being on our turf. Right? Dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead so that people could be saved through him. And this is our message here at Norfew. Jesus, God's Son, died on the cross for you and for me as well, which is a good thing, for our sins and rose again from the dead to lead an indestructible and eternal life. And from whence, which that's a great thing, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's the fearful thing. All right. And Mark wrote this gospel so that we would believe his message and be saved by this Jesus. So as I said, we don't want to go it in a, a rote way. We want to go through it in a faith way. Uh, we want to be able to engage with the story, engage with the Holy Spirit and the thinking. How does this speak to us as a body? How does this speak to us specifically as we go through? And Mark opens his gospel with two very familiar quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, The first one, we as Northview should recognize it. We should be familiar with it because it comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It's, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And if you remember the book of Malachi, there's this incredible prophecy, prophecy about the messenger that would come. There's two big places in Malachi where he speaks about that. And, and it's the forerunner, the, the picture of John the Baptist's ministry coming. And this is the fulfillment of it. And then the second one is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And those have been brought together into one to proclaim the herald of the, to proclaim John the Baptist's ministry coming. Uh, What most people don't know is that these verses were foreshadowed by a prophecy found in Exodus. Let me show you where that's found. In Exodus chapter 23, I can verify this. I read it last night at 3 in the morning. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. All right, this is uh, God talking. This is when the Israelites were coming through. Uh, they came through the Red Sea and now are being led through the wilderness. So this is the wilderness wanderings. And this is called a theophany. A theophany is the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, the question you could raise is, well, how do we know this is Jesus? Because uh, here God calls him an angel. And Jesus appeared in the Old Testament many times in different forms, different places, different roles. We don't have time to go through them this morning. But let me show you where this is connected in the New Testament and how we know this. This is found in 1 Corinthians by the Apostle Paul. And he's talking to the Corinthian church that they need to get some of their stuff straight. right? And he's using the illustration of the Israelites in the desert where they kind of botched it, saying, don't be like them. And in chapter 10, uh, pulling out a chunk of it, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That was the pillar of cloud that was over the tabernacle by day, and it became a pillar of fire by night. So they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That was the Red Sea. And they were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea, 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that's the part we usually identify with is that they botched it and didn't get the chance to go into the promised land. But there's something really important here. For uh, Paul points out something. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Christ was leading them through the desert. It was Christ who was their spiritual rock and Christ who was their spiritual drink. And we'll tap on that in just a second. But back to Mark's opening. Mark starts his gospel with the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And I'll go back to it. He starts with the beginning of John's ministry. And as I said before, it's hard for us to emotionally understand the power and impact that John held over the nation during the short years of his ministry. John did not have a long ministry. Uh, Some think that his actual public ministry was less than three years. But John was a rock star in every definition that we would have defined it. He was in all the Jerusalem publications. He was known across the country. He drew from the entire area. They estimate that the crowds were in the thousands and even in the tens of thousands. John was uh, an amazing, amazing person. And people were starting to make the connections between these passages in Malachi and these, this passage in Isaiah and what it said about the messenger who would come. And they were starting to connect that to John. And as word got out, the buzz grew and it got wilder and the grapevine worked and people just flocked to come and see and hear this guy. Also right here is where we see the tie between John Mark, Mark, the writer of this gospel, John Mark, and his beloved mentor and friend, Peter, the Apostle Peter. One of the questions to ask is, well, why did John, not John, Mark, he's John Mark, Mark, why did Mark start his gospel here? Because Matthew has a, right, a Christmas story in it, a birth story. Luke's got a birth story. John's got a huge prologue in chapter 1. But Mark starts with John's baptism. Well, there probably are were several reasons, but one of the more significant ones has to be because this is where Peter, Mark's mentor, marked everything from. In referring to uh, filling the role that was vacated by Judas when, when Judas had betrayed Jesus and, and hung himself, there was an empty slot, and so they're talking about how they're going to fill the slot. And Peter says this in Acts uh, chapter 1. Let me get there. He says, so... One of the men who have a, uh, has accompanied us, in other words, who can we pick from? Well, we're going to pick from one of the guys that's been with us since the beginning. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these, mess, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so Peter marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry during the baptism with John. He repeats it in Acts chapter 10, and so you can tell it's made a mark. This is how Peter starts it off. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so Peter marked the gospel from there, and so did Mark. The other reason is that John the Baptist's ministry was well known uh, throughout the area and was in the context of the Jewish connection, and so it went across the world. There were Jews in all parts of the world, and John's ministry was known to most of the Jewish encampments and synagogues in the other parts of the world. And so it was a great starting point for the Roman church, because this is who the letter was written to, because they would have understood and made the connection with John. So for these reasons, Mark then launches into a description of John and his ministry. And let's look at what he says about John. He says this, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine thousands of people listening to John and kneeling down and weeping and confessing their sins? I mean, we have a hard time confessing our sins to each other. Uh, we certainly wouldn't do it in public in church like this. We have a hard time even doing it with our husband and wife or our best friends. Can you imagine doing it in front of a couple thousand people and walking in front and then getting baptized in the river? It's a compelling picture. It's a compelling scene of the power of what was going on at that time. And John was compelling. And word spread like lightning. John had this incredibly compelling and hopeful, maybe even troubling message, like, what did this all mean? And John's message would be what I would call introductory. He was the prelude. He wasn't the star of the show. He was the one who was announcing the star of the show. But people were wondering if he could be the Messiah. And John was very clear. I am not he. I, who are you? I am the one of the voice crying out in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. John says, I'm a herald. I was announcing who's to come. It was hard for them to think of somebody greater than John. I mean, this is in the style of Elijah. This is in the style of Isaiah. We haven't, we haven't seen anything like this for 400 years. We heard stories. Yeah, we, we heard it back. But that, that happened back then. Never happens today. That was back then, right? Don't you feel like that today? Like it all happened back then and now it's just 2019 and we go to Costco, right? (laughs) Kind of thing. But it hit a chord. John's preaching hit a chord and a nerve. Israel was at a total low point. Uh, If you know their history, they were once again under domination. They were being ruled ruthlessly by the Romans. It was rough, Uh, And some would do anything to get the Romans off their back. So any kind of message that there might be a Messiah coming would be uh, welcome news. But others, others truly sensed that something was deeply wrong, much like we do today. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with our culture. And John's message of repentance called them back. They knew they had drifted. They knew they had drifted as individuals and they knew they had drifted as a culture. And they knew they had to do something to get it right. And John was offering a way to get it right with God and they were hungry for it. And so they responded. And then Mark actually describes 
John, the assumption this is Peter's description and Peter was there and actually saw him in person, so he probably knew what he looked like. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That's probably a new fad diet that will kick up here any day. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Think with me the kind of power this message would have invoked as John gave it. The idea again, one greater than John? What? Who, what would, who could that be? What would that look like? They were stunned. They had never seen or heard anybody like John. John was off the charts. Who would this other guy be like? Thousands upon thousands were coming to hear this man. And here he was saying that someone else is coming. And, and he used the illustration that this person is so much above me, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie the strap of his sandals. Well, if John is here, who's that? Like, what are we dealing with? What, what are we looking for? What, could it be possible? What kind of power would this person have? John baptized with water, but he said this person would would baptize with living water, with the Holy Spirit. Would this person be greater than Moses, who struck the rock and water flowed out and quenched the thirst of an entire nation? Could it? Could it be the long and awaited time of Messiah might finally be at hand? Is that possible? You can imagine where their thoughts went. And then in this setting, into that setting, in our story where we look at the little town that uh, John was by, the Jordan River, and John was at the river and this other man walks through town. And Levi follows him. It reads like this. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is one of the most incredible moments in the history of the world. This is the inauguration of the greatest ministry the world ever has or ever will see. Imagine the scene. Part of the problem is we know the end of the story, so it wrecks it for us. But imagine you don't know the rest of the story. Imagine you don't know the rest of the other 16 chapters of Mark. And imagine you don't know about the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you've never even heard about the rest of the New Testament. You don't know anything about that stuff. But you've heard these verses. This is what you know. And right there you see and you're standing on the bank and there's John in the river with his camel hair and his staff and he's preaching, calling out. And you see this man come down the bank and you see him walk out to John. And you wonder what's going on. Can you imagine if you were John? Now think this through for a second. John and Jesus were cousins, right? Remember that? He was cousin. Elizabeth and Mary were cousins. So John and Jesus were cousins. They were six months apart in age. Jesus was six months younger than John. They knew each other when they were children. 
They probably played together. They went and visited. They probably got in trouble together. Who knows? Can Jesus get in trouble? Right? They're boys. It's a thought. But they're, but they're there together. But then their lives take different turns. Uh, most scholars feel that John went out into the wilderness uh, with the Essenes, which is the group that we would know as what? The Dead Sea Scrolls. They're the group that put the scrolls in the cavern. They feel he was out in that community. Nobody knows the length of time, but that's where they figure he came from. And so their lives went in kind of really different directions. Jesus was in Nazareth. John was out in the wilderness with the Essenes. And uh, they had, we don't really know if they had any contact or not. But can you imagine when Jesus comes down the bank and God says to John, that's him. What? My cousin? That's him. That's who I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals? Can you imagine John going, I didn't know that was the twist in the plot. This is a good movie. Blew me away. Whoa! Right? And you can tell John is thrown by this thing. Not so much in Mark's Gospel, but you go in the other Gospels, John is going, no, 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 this is all backwards. Wait a minute, don't do it. I should be baptized by you. What are you doing coming to get baptized by me? And what does Jesus say? It's okay, John. Let it happen. It will fulfill all righteousness. Just do your part. And, and John is incredulous. John is, is stunned. But right here, I think, is something that I want to point out to when, it, when you talk about Jesus and how he's different. Why is he different? How is he different than any other spiritual leader? How is he different from any other kind of um, religion or faith out there? And I want to suggest this gives us a key insight to it right here. What it tells us is the incredible humility of Jesus. If you were God, is that how you would do it? If anybody could have blown his trumpet, wouldn't it have been God? Could it have been Jesus? I'm here. Hello. Bow. Right? Isn't that how we've done it? Right? You can all bow. Now I'm here. Thank you very much. I hope you're grateful. Right? That's not how Jesus did it. What did he do? He came humbly. He let his cousin baptize him. And can you imagine John taking Jesus? Here's John. Here's Jesus. He's looking. This is God. I'm, oh, hello. Can you imagine that moment? You don't know the rest of the New Testament. All you do, you're standing on the bank watching this amazing thing. Here's John. Here's Jesus. And what does it say? It says, Then John looked and he saw the heavens being torn open and the Holy Spirit like a dove coming down and landing on Jesus. And he hears God speak. Most of the people thought it thundered. They didn't know what was going on. It says this, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Can you imagine John going, Oh my goodness. What is going to happen next? And the next is what we're going to be walking through as we go through the rest of the gospel. 
See, that was real life. Those people on the bank saw it. And if you didn't know the rest of the New Testament, and if you didn't know the rest of the Gospels, would just what you heard this morning, would that be enough to convince you that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he was the Son of God? I'll bet you it convinced John. Yeah, John doubted a little later, right, because he was in prison and things weren't going too well for him. Would that be enough to convince you? If you had been standing on that bank and if you had watched and seen. You know the dove, that's the, that goes back to Noah's Ark, right? When Noah took the dove and sent it out, the dove is a symbol of peace. And when the dove finally came back, when the earth was good again and it was back and the floodwaters had receded, what did the dove bring in its beak? An olive branch, right? A, a symbol of peace. And that dove came and landed on Jesus and God says, this is my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Would that have been enough for you to believe? Well, even if it isn't, Mark wrote the rest of the gospel, so it would be. Let's walk with that together over the next couple months. And we're going to walk through the stories and try to capture them like they're brand new. Let's look at them like we saw them again for the first time. And what would God say to us in a living way if we saw that for the first time? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this. It was so much fun putting this together. It was fun writing that story. It was fun trying to catch it. And, and just incredible interweaving of things. Those verses in Malachi and the verses in Isaiah and how that kicks to Exodus and how that kicks to 1 Corinthians. And it was just delightful to pull that all out and see it and just go, wow, it's woven like a tapestry, beautifully woven superbly put together. Only God could do that. Lord, in that picture of Jesus coming down the bank and walking to His cousin and being baptized and the heavens being rent and the Spirit coming down, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Lord, that's a powerful picture. It should capture our heart and imagination. What we tried to do this morning, Lord, is slow it down. Slow it down, not to race ahead, but just to soak in it for a few short minutes and try to capture what would it have been like to be there. I can't wait to heaven, Lord, when you play the film and we get to watch it for real. It will be staggering. But Lord, use this uh, introduction here the beginning verses, to capture our imagination. May we have fun reading through Mark together. May you break great things out of your treasure house, both old and new, that will be beneficial for us as a church and beneficial for us as families and beneficial for us individually. We pray for that in your name. Amen.